Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Zoram, and Zoram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Zechariah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Zechariah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. It's not what you know, but who you know that matters. Have you ever heard that? It's an old adage that reminds us that sometimes knowing someone can be more important than knowing something. Sometimes getting the job or landing the promotion depends on having the right political connections, the right personal contacts, the right friends, rather than on being more experienced or better trained, or more highly qualified. 
Unfortunately, some people have taken that old adage, it's not what you know, but who you know that matters, and they have applied it to the Christian faith. And they have argued that since it's not what you know, but who you know that matters, knowing Jesus is far more important than knowing about Jesus. The first time I encountered this was with the little debate I had with a theology professor, not at Southeastern Seminary, at another institution where I taught. And he argued that since knowing Christ is more important than knowing about Christ, it it doesn't really matter if you know that Jesus is the virgin-born Son of God or that he lived a perfect life or that he died a sacrificial death. All that really matters is knowing Jesus in some kind of vague mystical way. I recognize to some in our age that sounds very spiritual. I would argue that it can actually be heretical. (laughs) You can't honestly claim to know a person unless you know some basic facts about that person, right? If you don't know a person's name, If you don't know something about their background, if you don't know something about their character, you don't know that person. A certain amount of knowledge is essential to a personal relationship. And the Apostle Matthew knows that if we are to know Jesus, we must first know about Jesus. And so he begins his gospel by giving us a basic introduction to the Lord Jesus' family background. Now, many of the men in the room know from experience how important it is for a person to know your family if they want to know you. And we may have dated uh, that young lady for quite a while, and we tried to explain who we were and how we were wired but when we really wanted that young lady to know us what did we do we took her home for supper at mom and dad's house so they could meet our parents and our brothers and our sisters and the more they got to know our family the more they got to know us as well in the same way the apostle matthew introduces us to the Lord Jesus by introducing us to Jesus's family. And when he does, he's taking our understanding of the Lord Jesus to an entirely different level. In fact, as we're introduced to the Lord Jesus family, we understand the essentials of Christ's identity. We understand his dignity, his majesty, and his deity that will one day lead to, as was sung a moment ago, every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What can we learn about the Lord Jesus from the family background here? There are many truths. We're going to unpack just three. First of all, we learn from this genealogy that Jesus is the king of God's people. And we saw that last week in the title of the gospel. Remember the title 
properly translated is the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But did you notice the oddity in the order of those last two titles? Son of David, then son of Abraham. It's not what we would have expected because the genealogy that immediately follows is naturally placed in chronological order. So it starts with Abraham, then goes to David, and ultimately to Jesus Christ. We would have expected the order of titles in the introduction to the gospel to follow that same chronological order, thus son of Abraham, son of David. But no, Matthew writes son of David, then son of Abraham. Why? Well, in ancient Greek, this places emphasis on the title son of David. What Matthew is telling us is if we miss everything else in this first chapter of the gospel, we need to focus our eyes on the fact that Jesus is a Davidic descendant, which of course qualifies him to be the Christ, the Messiah. But not only is Jesus' Davidic lineage stressed in the very title of this gospel, and the premise he placed on son of David, it's actually emphasized in the structure of the genealogy. In verse 17, Matthew explains that the generations from Abraham to David were 14 in number, and from David to the Babylonian captivity, 14 in number, and from the Babylonian captivity to the birth of the Messiah, 14 in number. 14, 14, 14. What is that all about? Well, this is an ancient literary device that was frequently used by the rabbis of Matthew's day. The device is called gematria. And gematria uses the numeric value of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet to communicate a message. The first letter of the Hebrew alphabet Aleph equals one. The second letter, Beit, equals two. The third letter, Gimel, equals three. The fourth letter, Dalet, equals four, and so forth. And using that code, you can communicate a message. Now, I'm only aware of two times in the New Testament in which this literary device is used here and in the book of Revelation with the very well-known Number of the beast, the 666. So don't think every time you see a number in Scripture, it has some uh, symbolic value. It doesn't. This is relatively rare. But Matthew is using this literary device here. It would kind of be like us making a secret code with one another in which we order the letters of our English alphabet and each letter represents the number in that order. A equals one, B equals two, C equals three, and so forth. Now, using that code, if you're driving down the highway and you see that my vehicle's broken down on the side of the road and you pull over and ask if you can assist, and I say, yes, please call for me a 312. If you understand gematria, you know that I've asked you to call for me a 
Cab, exactly. Well, that's how Hebrew gematria worked. Now, in Hebrew gematria, the number 14 came to represent King David and his promised descendant, the Davidic Messiah. Why? Because the name David in Hebrew is written with just three letters, Dalit, Vav, Dalit. The Dalit is the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, so it equals four. The Vav is the sixth letter, so it equals six. And then that last letter is another Dalit. Four plus six equals 10, plus another four equals, you're sharp, you're sharp. So 14 came to represent David and the Davidic Messiah. So what I'm saying is, not only has Matthew emphasized that Jesus is son of David, by the title of his gospel, Son of David, Son of Abraham, he's also stressed this by structuring the genealogy of the Lord Jesus so that it says, David, 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 with each major section. Now, in the Hebrew language, you don't have to use a superlative adjective to say something is the most whatever. You can just repeat the word three times. For example, Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's a way of expressing the superlative idea that God is the holiest of all. In the same way, when we have this threefold structure saying, David, 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 what Matthew is saying is that the Lord Jesus resembles David in a way that no one else does. If there were such an adjective, he is the Davidist of all people of all history. Now, why does Matthew stress this in this way? Well, the clue is given to us in verse 5. And Jesse was the father of David. And how is David described? The king. And Matthew really does mean the king. We know that because there are 15 kings in this genealogy, but how many of the kings receive the title king from Matthew's pen? One and only one, King David. Why? Because he is the ideal king. And he is the king with whom the Davidic covenant was made, where God promised King David that one of his descendants would reign from his throne forever and ever and ever. By all of these clues, Matthew is signaling to us that Jesus is that promised descendant of David that God spoke of in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And once that covenant was made between God and King David, that one of his descendants would reign from his throne forever and ever, the Old Testament prophets repeatedly speak of this coming descendant of David. A sprout or branch that would spring up from the root of Jesse. We looked at an example of this in Isaiah chapter 9 last week, but there are many other examples we could give, like... Ezekiel 34. 
God says, I will appoint over my people a single shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. He will tend them himself and will be their shepherd. I, Yahweh, will be their guide, and my servant David will be a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, who is this coming David that Ezekiel keeps talking about? Well, it's not the original David because Ezekiel writes about three centuries after the death of the original King David. This my servant David, this one who will shepherd the people of God, is that Davidic descendant who will be the fulfillment of God's covenant with King David from 2 Samuel 7. He will be the shepherd king who will rule over God's people forever and ever and ever. So Matthew has explained to us in this genealogy that Jesus is that coming king. He is the one before whom every knee must bow. He is the one to whom we must relinquish control over our lives. He is the sovereign to whom we must completely submit. Years ago, I was pastoring a rural church in northeast Mississippi, and a teenager had been visiting our church who wanted me to go to her home and explain the gospel to her father. I was welcomed by the daughter into the home and walked into the living room, introduced to the dad, and began to try to have a spiritual conversation with him, but it was tough had a cigarette in one hand, a beer can in the other hand, and he was watching some horrible program on cable television, unlike anything I had ever seen before. And he refused to set any of that aside the whole time I was trying to explain the gospel to him. Well, the, I explained the gospel basically as confessing faith in Jesus as God, Savior, and King, the very same three truths that this genealogy is going to teach us. And when I asked that man, are you willing to confess faith in Jesus as God, Savior, and King, he said, well, I'm about halfway there, maybe two-thirds. He said, I, I believe that Jesus is probably God, and I believe he probably died on the cross for my sins, so he is Savior. But I got a big problem, preacher, with this King part. He said, I'm my own man. I am in charge of my own life. I stand on my own two feet. And I'm not going to give up my freedom so that Jesus Christ can be king over me. I said, so you're telling me that you don't want to follow Christ because you don't want to give up your freedom. He said, yeah, exactly. I said, can you snuff out that cigarette and never smoke another one? No, well, I have tried. I said, and can you pour out that beer and never drink another one? No, I really ought to. My alcohol issues have really hurt this family, hurt my work on the job. And I said, and can you shut that television program off and never watch something like that again? And he said, I'm sorry, preacher, I didn't mean any harm. I said, you're missing the point. 
The issue is not whether or not you have offended me. You're sitting there telling me you don't want to follow Christ because you don't want to lose your freedom. Seems to me you have no freedom. You are a slave and these are your masters. And I'm not asking you to give up freedom to make yourself a servant or subject of King Jesus. I'm asking you to trade your servitude to an evil king that only will destroy you for subjection to a king who loves you and only wants what is best for you. The Lord Jesus is the only one who is qualified to be king over our lives, and he is calling you now to bow the knee before him, to crown him as king of your life, to submit to his authority and his control so that the purpose of your life is to live for him and not for yourself. And when you do that, you will find you're not sacrificing freedom at all. You're finding, in fact, a freedom beyond anything human words can describe. Jesus is the king of God's people. But this genealogy also explains to us that Jesus is God over all. Now, Matthew introduced that truth to us in the title of the gospel. Remember, it's the book of Genesis by Jesus Christ. And what Matthew has told us is that Jesus is the creator who performed the original Genesis back in Genesis chapter 1, the act of creation of the heavens and the earth and the creation of humanity. And he is also the creator who will perform the miracle of the new Genesis, the new creation in which he will make all things new, reversing the effects of sin and restoring creation to its original perfection. And Matthew, of course, is going to emphasize that again in the very next pericope in chapter 1, where he identifies the Lord Jesus as the fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah 7:14. He is the virgin-born Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew loves this truth far too much, and he recognizes it's far too important to mention it only in the title of the gospel and only in the account of Jesus' birth. He must announce this great truth in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus too, and he does so in verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. You might say, well, sorry, I don't see that. <laughs> and the reason we don't see it is because in English, the whom of verse 16 is somewhat ambiguous. It's possible in English that the whom refers either to Joseph and his conception of the Lord Jesus or to Mary giving birth to the Lord Jesus. But the ambiguity that we have in some of our English translations is not a problem in the original Greek text because in Greek grammar, 
Relative pronouns have gender. In this case, if Joseph were the one who is conceiving or giving birth to the Lord Jesus, the pronoun would be masculine. If Mary is the one who is the focus, then the pronoun would be feminine. Guess what gender the original Greek pronoun is in? It's feminine. The whom is a reference to Mary exclusively. But the reason that's so shocking is because that then means that verse 16 clearly identifies for us a human mother of the Lord Jesus, but does not identify a human father. That's a real oddity because where has the emphasis fallen throughout every generation in the genealogy up to this point? The father. We read it in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and so forth. Father, 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 father. There are only four times that a mother's even mentioned, and, and then that mention is somewhat parenthetical. The emphasis comes clearly on the fathers. And we finally get to this last generation of the genealogy, and a human mother, not a human father, is identified. Why? Well, there's another grammatic clue to what Matthew is doing here. Not only does he identify a mother and not a father? When he speaks of Jesus' birth, he uses the very same verb that he used in all of the other generations of the genealogy, but he shifts the voice from the active to the passive. And that's important because that means this constitutes what grammarians refer to as a divine passive, which is a reverent way of referring to the activity of God. The grammar of verse 16 identifies a human mother and not a human father because there was no biological human father in the picture. The Lord Jesus was miraculously conceived by the power of God through the Virgin Mary, as the rest of chapter 1 will go on to explain. Matthew can't wait to get to the account of the Lord Jesus' birth. So even here in verse 16, he tells us that Jesus is the miraculously conceived, virgin-born Son of God. And not only is the Lord Jesus the king of God's people, he is God over all. As king, he is worthy of all of our submission and all of our obedience. But as God, he is worthy of all of our love and devotion and worship. Great commandment of the Old Testament explained how people are to relate to God. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God fully and completely with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. 
Once we understand that Jesus is none other than God over all in human form, we recognize our obligation and privilege of loving him fully and completely and serving him with everything that we have. But not only is Jesus the king of God's people, not only is Jesus God over all, Matthew tells us that the Lord Jesus is the savior of outcasts. I mentioned that the emphasis throughout the genealogy is on father, 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 but there are four exceptions, and these are in verses 3, 5, and 6. These verses identify for us the mother of Perez, who is Tamar, the mother of Boaz, who is Rahab, the mother of Obed, who is Ruth, and the mother of Solomon, who is Bathsheba. Out of all these generations in the genealogy, why are these four women singled out for special mention? What's Matthew teaching us through this? Well, there are a number of views. One view is that all of these women are mentioned because they're notorious sinners. And initially, this seems to be a good explanation because, after all, Tamar was guilty of incest and prostitution. Rahab had been a prostitute. Bathsheba was an adulteress. But things completely break down when we get to Ruth. Although some would interpret the book of Ruth to suggest that she had a premarital relationship with Boaz, the fact is, that's not how any of the Jews in Matthew's day interpreted that text. They were emphatic that Ruth was a paragon of virtue and she maintained her purity throughout her entire courtship with the man who would be her husband. In other words, if Matthew is including these four names to show God's grace to notorious sinners, how God condescends to the very worst of people, then none of his original readers would have gotten it because they all viewed Ruth as someone who was holy and was pure. Some interpreters have suggested that Matthew includes these four women because they all gave birth under unusual circumstances like the unusual circumstances surrounding the virgin birth of our Lord and the rest of this chapter. But I've never been satisfied with that explanation either because if Matthew were looking for Old Testament parallels to Jesus's miraculous conception by the Virgin Mary, why not mention Sarah? Why not mention Rebecca? These were women who not only conceived children under, under unusual circumstances, these are women whose conceptions were miraculous and thus much more similar to the virgin birth of our Lord. No, that doesn't make sense either. So the best explanation is that these four women are named in the genealogy to demonstrate God's love for 
Gentiles, non-Jews, people who are not native-born Israelites, who are not descendants of Father Abraham. Because each of these four women had a Gentile identity. Tamar was a Canaanite. Rahab, likewise, was from Jericho. Ruth was a Moabitess. And although Bathsheba was a Jewess, by virtue of her marriage to Uriah, the what? The Hittite, she assumes a Hittite identity. And so all of these women are closely associated with a Gentile background and not just an ordinary Gentile background, but the arch enemies of the people of Israel from Old Testament times. And by highlighting the names of these four Gentile women in the genealogy, Matthew's demonstrating God doesn't just love the Jews alone. He loves all the peoples of the earth, and his kingdom will be composed of people from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. And God's love for all the peoples of the world is one of the most prominent theological themes of the entire gospel of Matthew. We'll see it with the visit of the Magi, representatives of the Gentile world are the first to worship the Lord Jesus in this gospel. We'll see it with Jesus' grace and compassion to the Roman centurion and his words of commendation. I've not found faith as great as yours in all the nation of Israel. And this will occur again and again and again until we finally reach the climax of the gospel and read that Jesus' disciples are to go and make disciples of all nations, not just places like Judea and Galilee, but literally all the nations of the world. In the next half of this chapter, the Lord Jesus is going to be described as the one who came to save his people from their sins. Now, your average reader of Matthew's gospel would have naturally assumed, well, he, well, his people must be the people of Israel. It must be the Jewish nation. But if they paid close attention to the genealogy that immediately precedes that account, they know his people includes more than just Jews. It includes Gentiles as well. Gentiles like Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And this is an assurance to us that the Lord Jesus came to save people like us. Very few native-born Israelites, I suspect, in our congregation this morning. And if it were not for God's gracious inclusion of Gentiles and the people of God, there would be no hope for any of us in this room. In a sense, the Lord Jesus' family tree foreshadows Calvary's tree. It assures us that Jesus died for all the peoples of the world in order to be the savior of those from every nation, tribe, and tongue. 
the Lord Jesus came to rescue people like us from the penalty of our sin as well. When I see the names of these four Gentile women in Jesus' genealogy, I can't help but think back to that little children's song that I learned back in good old Southern Baptist Vacation Bible School where we sang, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. The genealogy of the Lord Jesus demonstrates that his people include people like us. Whatever the color of our skin, whatever our cultural background, whatever our nationality, whatever language we speak. I want to call your attention for just a moment to this familiar symbol. You're all familiar, I expect, with the ichthus symbol. The word ichthus is the Greek word for fish. That's the technical name for this symbol. We see it all over the place. Christian businessmen place it on their advertisements. Uh, some Christians put this on a bumper sticker. But there's a lot of confusion as to why the fish came to symbolize the Christian faith. Some think, well, maybe it's because the Lord Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes. Or maybe it's because some of the first disciples to be called, Peter and Andrew, James and John, were originally fishermen. But no. The fish came to represent our faith because the Greek word for fish, ichthus, is an acrostic that was used as an evangelistic tool for explaining the gospel to unbelievers. You know what an acrostic is. It's a word in which every letter is the first letter of another word, and you put it all together and it spells out a message. An example would be MAD, M-A-D-D. We might know that that stands for Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Well. The ichthus word functions the very same way. The first letter that you see there that looks like our capital I is the iota. It's the first letter of the Greek word Jesus or Jesus. The next letter that you see is the chi. Looks like our X. It's the first letter of the word Christos or Christ, Messiah, the anointed king word that Matthew uses twice here in this genealogy to describe Jesus as that promised descendant of David, the one who will be king over the people of God. The next two letters are theta and upsilon, the first letters of the phrase theufuias, which means God's son. The virgin-born Son of God, who is deity incarnate, God in human flesh. And the last letter of Ichthus is the letter Sigma, which is also the first letter of the word Soter, which means Savior. And you put the acrostic together, and it says that Jesus is the Christ, 
That is the king of God's people. He is God's son, the virgin-born Emmanuel, God with us. And he is the Savior, the one who came to die on the cross for our sins in our place. Early Christians used this as an evangelistic tool because they recognized if you boil the entire Christian faith down to just three fundamental truths, these are those truths. Jesus is King, Jesus is God, and Jesus is Savior. Isn't it interesting that those are the very same three truths truths that we saw in our study of the title to Matthew's Gospel in Matthew 1.1? And they're the very same primary truths that we see in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verses 2 through 17. And Matthew is going to reiterate these truths again and again and again in his gospel because the gospel according to Matthew really is the gospel according to Matthew. It's the gospel message. It is the gospel of salvation. And Matthew is saying, if you miss anything else and everything else in this book, these are the three truths that you must walk away with. Jesus is king, Jesus is God, and Jesus is Savior. Without confessing those three truths, there is no hope for salvation. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like the man that I spoke to years ago who said, well, I'm halfway or two-thirds there. No, no such thing. Just to, to just affirm two of the three great truths or one of the three great truths is completely insufficient. That's not being halfway there. That, that's being 100% wrong. It's missing the entire boat. And it leaves you without any hope for forgiveness of sin or a transformed life or restored fellowship with God. I pray that you today will trust Jesus as God's Savior and King, affirming the ichthus gospel that the church has celebrated for the last 2,000 years. And that although Jesus may be far more to you than those three words express he will never be anything less if you want to know jesus you got to know about jesus and the most important things to know about jesus are that he is god savior and king but it is true that just knowing these truths about him isn't sufficient. You can't just believe in your head that Jesus is God's Savior and King. It must be personalized so that you submit to Jesus' authority as your King, so that you worship the Lord Jesus as your God and you love him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins personally in your place so that we who are enemies of God can now be made his children and his friends. I pray that if you've not come to this faith now, you will.
Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I invite you to pray this prayer of commitment with me. Lord Jesus, I confess that you are king. I am so sorry that I have been a rebel, defying your authority all of my life, and I humbly submit to your authority over my life right now. Take charge of my life. Help me to live my life for you and for your glory. And Lord Jesus, I confess that you are my God. And for the rest of my days, I want to worship you, adore you, help me to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Lord Jesus, I confess you as my Savior. I know I am helpless and hopeless without you. I know I am destined to eternally suffer God's wrath because of my sins and rebellion. I know there is no good thing I can do to make up for my sin. But I thank you that in your people, you include even the outcasts like Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba and Ruth. I pray that you will save me even as you save them. I believe you died on the cross for my sins and my place, that you were punished for me so that I do not have to be punished. So please save me and forgive me and give me the promise of eternal life with you. In Jesus' name.